Welcome to episode 284. Start again. Welcome to episode 284 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theater featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. I just want to take a moment to remind you about my Patreon in support of my work on a new audio drama for the holidays. For those who don't know, Patreon is a membership platform that helps people like you support creators. For a monthly subscription fee that goes directly to the artist, you can help a creative like me make something new. For me, I'm taking my subscribers along with me on the entire creation process. Through posts, video, and live stream, my Patreon subscribers will come with me for the entire process, from brainstorming to writing to recording right through to the release of the project. And for some subscription levels, I will even create a special early release version of the project just for them. You can find, you can subscribe and follow along at patreon.com slash if you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews do actually help new people find this show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you find podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 284 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Calgary-based actor and singer, Daniel Fong. Just for me, just if you could describe... If somebody came up to you and said, what is it that you do... How would you describe your artistic practice? Uh, I am a silly, ridiculous actor, singer, semi-coordinated mover who likes to create things with his friends and uh, make people laugh a little bit. So you lean more towards the, towards the comedy aspect or? I mean, I, I love all aspects of it. I think I just naturally have more of an inclination towards comedy and being silly. I mean, I love dramatic shows. I love that kind of thing. But if I'm going to spend the rest of my life, I might as well be laughing as opposed that's, to that's carrying my true. heart out in front of strangers. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in a lot of ways, comedy can be, and it's a lot more fun. You certainly get a more immediate uh, feedback from your audience. Oh, so much more gratifying. Yeah. And that's what I'm in it. Re really, that's what I'm in it for is the instant gratification. I mean, if any, any of us say that we're not in it for some form of gratification from an audience, we're kind of lying. That's, that's I think, what draws me to theater a little bit. Like, in a deep, selfish, deep-down way, is that you get that kind of instant feedback with an audience. If it was film or something, you know, like, eight months later, someone comes up and is like, hey, you did such a great job. It's not the same. No, it's not. It's not. I remember <laughs> the first time I did a film, it was, it was, like, it was a comedy and the feeling of emptiness in like delivering what was should have been like a killer line that would bring the house down <laughs> in a theatrical situation. You get you say the line and you're like, this is really a disappointing situation. Yeah, it just leaves you sad inside. Not to not to uh, be mean to anyone who likes film. I totally love the medium. I think it's very exciting and everything. But I'm just uh, I need that kind of connection with people, I think. I've always felt more drawn to the to live theater than to than to film. There's mm -hmm. just it it is that even if it's not comedy, you can feel the room. Like you can feel when the room is like right there with you. You can feel when you lose them. You can feel so many things that you can't get out of film. For me, I find the stakes are so high in theater because it's like at any moment anything could go wrong and then everyone has to fix it right whereas yeah. on 
film, I just find like the stakes just comes from the sound of money and the background burning as you're doing take after take. Absolutely. As, they're just, as you're just watching thousands of dollars flow away and you're like, oh man, I should really get this line right. Or Absolutely. everyone is going to lose their you know, there's some There's something about that moment, like when something does go wrong, even if it's like somebody drops a pen or something on the floor. And as an audience member, you sort of like you sort of like lean forward like is is somebody I know this isn't blocked is somebody going to actually pick up the pen oh, whoever my. picks up the pen is automatically my hero come on somebody pick up the pen you know and there's something about like when you're a performer watching other performers fix things on stage is very exciting it's so satisfying <laughs> to see something go wrong and have somebody just come along and like in character like pick up the pen or whatever and you're just like you are my hero right there. And, yeah. I watched this like hilarious version of uh, what is it? Legally Blonde at Stage West here. And uh, they had, they were doing the whip, like get whipped into shape number. Yeah. And they had, for whatever reason, they decided they had these like bead skipping ropes. Like they were beaded skipping ropes. Okay. I don't know whose call it was. I think maybe it was to get the sound on stage. Like it had a very nice mm-hmm. sound when it impacted for. Anyways, of course, I was there on the night that one of these just shattered everywhere and it was like a thousand little beads all over the stage and just watching all the actors just like grind to like a sudden stop for like a millisecond and then everyone's like okay we're gonna fix this and like some guy comes out with a broom and starts sweeping in character and like it was so great to watch them clean it up and like you're just dying inside of the audience watching that happen right so but there's something about like as as a not if you're a non-theater person and something goes wrong on stage i wonder if if like you're thinking to yourself just why why doesn't somebody just pick that up like why does like why does oh, somebody yeah. just do that? And as an actor, you're like you know that feeling of like that's not what I'm blocked to do. I'm not supposed to do that, but there it is. You know, there's like this this moment of like there's that fear of like I'm gonna steal focus, but really every single person is staring at that pen on the ground. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially because everybody has been like stepping over it for the past like four <laughs> minutes, like deliberately just stepping over it. Yeah, uh, Daniel. Um, as far as your th- one of the things that I like to talk about on uh, on stage worthy is um, everybody's origin story. I like to we're all comic book characters. We're the heroes of the the story of our own life. So as a theater artist, what's your origin story? How did you get drawn to theater? How did you decide that was going to be the thing you do? Yeah, um, I mean, I I really enjoyed doing theater growing up. Like it was just, it was fun to do, but it was never a thing that I really considered doing as a career. But I always grew up watching my oldest brother. I'm the youngest of three brothers. I grew up watching my oldest brother do a lot of theater and I really looked up to him. And so I was like front row of all his performances and his biggest fan and everything. And I would crash all his cast parties and embarrass him and everything, right? And so I don't know. I just grew up watching him and I that's kind of what drew me into it just to start because I just I wanted to be just like my brother. And then I kind of as time went by just developed a really great just love of the people in theater. Like it wasn't like I don't know. Some people get really drawn to various aspects of the thing and for me it's always been community and the people that I get to spend time with mm-hmm. and uh And so then like high school was coming to a close and it was time to look for universities and everything. And I hadn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then, uh, cause theater had always just kind of been my way to like escape. Mm -hmm. You know, I always assumed I was going to go into something else and theater was just kind of where I went to have fun and breathe. And then, uh, it was actually my mother who was like, I think you should go into theater for university. And I was like, well, that's a ridiculous idea. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. You're kind of reversed from the, the the more common story that I hear is where somebody is like, I'm going to go into theater. And their mom is like, you should ex- really think about yeah. doing something else. I know. What kind of mother knowingly thrusts her <laughs> child into a life in the arts? <laughs> but I mean, she was right, I think. And uh, she, we looked at programs and things. And I, I ended up going to the Grant McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I remember looking at the program and I was like, this seems amazing. And, uh, yeah, I went and spent some time there and then came back home to Calgary and, uh, have been working as an artist ever since. Now, before, 
you made that decision, before your mom sort of thrust you towards theater school, were you just sort of going through high school assuming that at some point it would come to you, like some kind of like the heavens would open and it would be like, you are going to be an accountant or something like that, whatever that yeah, would be? Or? I'm trying to think back and it's like, I I had so many random, like growing up, like my first job I ever wanted to be was a marine biologist, Right. And because I we would go for vacations out to the coast and I would just basically spend every summer just like knee deep in tide pools playing with Mm. creature disturbing creatures in their natural home. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And uh, and then I found out that like, you know, a marine biologist really doesn't do that and spends 90 percent of their time in a lab. And and so I was crushed. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a baker because I love baking. I love cooking things. I'm like, amazing. And then I found out that bakers have to wake up at like five in the morning and I'm a very naturally <laughs> nocturnal person. And I was like, um, dang, I'm going to need something else. And yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, I really just kept looking at things and nothing was speaking to me. And I think mm. it was because the answer was right there in my face and I just wasn't considering it. Uh, yeah. I think there's, there's so many times when, when something is so obvious to everybody except us, you know? Like the idea of, oh, I love doing this thing. It makes me, you know, it's this thing. I love it. I love the community. I love all these things. What am I going to do when I grow up? Like, Well, and I think it's this weird, I remember this weird pressure in high school where it was like, you had to be a doctor. You had to be an engineer, especially like in Alberta. I don't know about Mm. everywhere else, but it was like, there are certain things that's like, you have to do that to succeed here. Mm. And it never occurred to me that my job could be something that I loved. Really, like it truly seemed like I had to work really hard at something I didn't like so that I in my spare time, I could maybe do something that I liked. Yeah, I haven't been I haven't been in, in, in high school in a very, very, very long time. But <laughs> what? when I was I know, I know. But when I was in high school, um, very similar, it was like all about like, you know, you're going to go to university and you're going to get a degree and 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 you're going to do all of these things. And I'm sure that you could be a doctor. Or you could be like this sort of thing. And I remember going to the guidance counselor when I was, mm-hmm. they were like, you know, we're going to figure out where you're going to, where you're going to go to school. And I remember saying like, I'm going to be an actor. And the guidance counselor went, huh? <laughs> oh, no. Like they didn't know what to do. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a, it is such a strange career, right? And it's, it's very hard to explain I, I specifically because it's tax season right now, it's very hard to justify and explain what it is you do to people that don't uh, quite understand sometimes. Well, I mean, that's certainly that's certainly the case in, as far as as far as taxes go. And it can get like, you know, I'm I'm relatively lucky. I have a day job and I, ta- I do a lot of theater on the side. Mm-hmm. My taxes are super simple because oh. I have a day job and it makes things really easy. But then I see people posting like like their floor covered in receipts, and I at that point I'm like, <laughs> I made the right choice. I uh, my fiance is an elementary school teacher, and we just finally like neatly organized all our taxes in the last little while. But it is it's so painful to me because she has like four little slips of paper neatly tucked <laughs> away, and then I have a full on binder like a yeah. just a giant clip booklet of stuff that is oh, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's been like I'm not. I, the many years when I've sat down to do my taxes, it's like one form, plug in number. Um, <laughs> do I owe anything? No. And, but <laughs> but then but then you know, I spend many hours out of the day not doing the thing that yeah. I particularly love. So it's a trade off, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. It's uh, trying to find those trade offs, right? And um, when you when you were at theater school, was there um, a particular aspect of, of it that, that you were drawn to? A lot of people that I've been speaking to lately, they, they find they were drawn to the creation of, of theater and things like that. Or was there something I mean, that, that you particularly felt yourself drawn to? I just, I really, I liked all of it. And, and I think because a lot of it was new, like I wasn't someone who really got into theater at a young age and was like, this is my thing and trained for it. For forever so I kind of threw myself in the deep end because I went to Grant McEwen for musical theater but I hadn't really sung too much before that and mm. I had done a lot of martial arts but I hadn't done much dance or anything so really I came into a musical theater program as just pretty much an actor mm. and so there was such a wealth of things to practice and and I think that really uh, vibes well with my kind of personality where I just you know I love to learn new things constantly and be mm. uh, 
you know, I have a shorter attention span, but I have a lot of like uh, enthusiasm in which to throw myself into many things. So it, it worked out in the long run because I yeah. just got to really just dive headfirst into all of these incredible different mediums and just practice them. Yeah, it's super. Um, I remember when I was in theater school, um, we had, there was one guy who had really never done any theater out before he came to the theater program. And because he'd done so little, the teachers were like, you have no bad habits. We love you because we don't have to break mm -hmm. any of your bad acting habits. Yeah. Everybody else, you have tricks and you have all these things. And, and so it was like, he had this, like, he was able to be an open book and just be like to absorb everything. And we were all like, but that's not what I normally do. And like all of these struggles with mm -hmm. how we've done things when we were in high school and what we thought was good acting and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So in some ways I would imagine that, that not having done like all of the singing, all of the dancing. And, and for a lot of that, it you may have been in a similar, similar situation. Yeah. And one of the things to me that like, it took me many years to kind of come to terms with is that like theater school, like at the time, because I was such a, I was right out of high school and I hadn't done a ton of this. Is that like for me, theater school felt like this is the way, right? And it took me many years to kind of reconcile with the fact that theater school is just a resource. And mm. I was allowed to kind of pick and choose what I liked and what worked for me from theater school and kind of forget about the things that didn't make sense or, or weren't in my mind, useful to my, who I am as a person, as a performer. Right. And it took me a while to rectify that. Cause for a while you left theater school and you're like, Oh God, I'm so bad at this class or whatever, mm -hmm. or whatever. And I, and I will never be any good at that, but it's just learning to apply the things that work and, and really what it means to be your own person, your own artist, take those tools that you paid for that you learned and, and apply them to who you want to be. Yeah. I definitely remember being a little bit fucked up coming out of theater school, trying to be like everything and yeah. and not being able to figure out what what I was as an actor and always having like the voice of the acting teacher in the back of my head scolding me for things. And yeah, it's such a weird thing when you pay for people's opinions as an artist, uh, because especially yeah. as a theater school, because, you, you know, for me, I didn't know necessarily who my teachers were. It was on the, you know, I just went to mm -hmm. the thing. So I wasn't I didn't even necessarily know who the, whose opinions I was paying for. Mm. Um, but I think that's kind of the the process that a lot of performers go on is they go into theater school, they get a ton of opinions and other voices. And then that those kind of formative emerging years afterward are kind of find finding what their voice is through that or, or using whatever they can. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that was your experience or not, or yeah. I mean, yeah. Theater school. I, I have some very specific memories of theater school, most of which were about being afraid being afraid yep. that I was going to be cut from the program and all this stuff. And, oh. and there's like just this, this, this terror of that, of that happening. And it's like, I remember having essentially like three months of, of, of blissful ignorance until the, until the Christmas break. Mm -hmm. And then people got cut. And then it was oh like, God. what, oh what God. school did you go to? I went to the, to George Brown okay, uh, college. Yeah. Do they and, still do that or did they change the program now? Is, uh, it, is it still a... the last time I heard anything is they hadn't cut anybody. They would still talk nebulously about the possibility of cuts, I see. but they did. They weren't actually doing it. And I really feel like no school should do that. I, I mean, ultimately, like just as with an agent or whatever, like you're paying like you would pay them or like the agent mm -hmm. would work for you, but they're like you're paying the school, right? Yeah. So it's not up to them to be the arbiters and gatekeepers of who is worthy of a, a graduation from there and whatnot. Like it should be their challenge as teachers to try and impart as much as they can. Yeah. And then, you know, the world and the rest of the theater business is hard enough and that will make the choice for them kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So. And definitely. And in, in, in many ways, I think, you know, there are people who will, you know, move themselves out of the program. The program won't be for them and things like yeah. that. But of course, yeah. Who are they to decide who's going to succeed? There are plenty of people who graduated from my class who within a year or two years were no longer doing theater. Yeah. You know? Same here. So. Well, yeah. And if yeah. I think back to who I was during university days, I was a, I was a pile of hot garbage. I mean, who, <laughs> who was it? You know, like, so you do so much growing afterwards. That, that, like, yeah. It's just one step, right? And it seems weird to yeah. kind of stop people before they can even... Mm -hmm. even get out there yeah now um we're in terms of of, of the school mm -hmm. um 
were were there uh, other Asian students in your class or in your in your school or were you? Yeah, so I'm I'm half Chinese, half okay. kind of Ukrainian Swedish mix. Okay. Uh, from the thing, I had another friend of mine who was Asian, full Asian in my year, mm-hmm. and he's actually lives in Toronto. Toronto. His name is Anthony, Anthony Hall. Uh, I think he does lots of stuff at Second City, and he had his own CBC Gem show. Uh, he's fantastic, great, great guy. Mm. Um, there were a few other people of color in my program, but it was predominantly white, and I believe mm-hmm. the staff was. Mm, if, let me think back, because it's been a few years. It's, Wow, it's been more than just a few years now. Uh, <laughs> the staff at the time was predominantly white. I don't know what the yeah. staff is like now because, yeah, it's, they've had lots of changes. Since. Sure. Well, I find that I found that that the, the especially like when I would look back at at George Brown, I tell you right now, all of my teachers were white, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. um, we I know that that schools tend to be slow to change. Yeah, you know they. Yeah. They stick to the curriculum. They know they stick to the teachers. They know they're and they're slow to realize that sort of the world around them is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, uh, you know, at the time that I was in theater school, nobody was even talking about collecting, like creating your own work. In fact, they were mm. actively dissuading us from <laughs> from thinking really? about doing anything other than than saying that I'm an actor, you know, so that that's a long time coming to, to, to any kind of change. Yeah, it was, uh, an interesting thing. I mean, I remember in university having so deeply being drawn to the character of Willie Loman, uh, Mm. just specifically because I'd only ever seen it played by old white guys. Mm. And I so deeply felt that like the journey that he goes on in the American dream and all of that stuff. So like so much better reflected the story of immigrants. Mm. And at that time, you know, they were, but like now I just, I, I've never, I would love to see someone play that character as a POC. Yeah. Cause I, I just think it's shifted. Right. And I just remember, yeah, that was one thing that I remember way back. I was like, I don't know why, but in university I was always like, one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to play Willie Loman. <laughs> I'm going to show them I can do it or something. It was, yeah, a weird Did thing. Did ever tell you that you couldn't, on. or was that just something that you had in your head? That no, it I don't. Done by... It was weird. I, it wasn't so much theater school or, or a thing. No one ever really directly ever says, like, you can't do this, right? There's just, like, weird things all the time where, like, you go in for a casting call and, like, it's only Asian people for a family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or things like that. And it's like, I come from a mixed family myself. And mm-hmm. so for me growing up, it's very clear that families can look like whatever you want them to be. And, uh, and you know, you feel like this should be weird on stage for some reason until you see it and it's completely normal because people are already come to believe whatever you want because they paid $30 to be sit there and believe what you tell them. Well, so. that's, that's sort of the amazing thing about theater is that I always think that, that, you know, the audience will pretty much accept whatever you give them. Mm-hmm. They're especially in theater. Nobody's got like people like you can if you show them a black box and say this is the forest of Arden, they're gonna be like, oh, it's the forest of Arden. You know, yeah. it doesn't matter what what you say. And I also come from a mixed family, and so for me, like when people are like, oh, the, the people don't look alike, it's like, yeah, but families don't all don't necessarily. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's like just this whole yeah, like I've never you know, oh, we have to make sure that. that people look good together it's like eh, you don't like yeah I've never understood that talk. like that idea that yeah and particularly in like familial casting and mm-hmm. theater and stuff I've never understood that because yeah I, I remember there was a production of Shakespeare's Land of the Dead mm-hmm. that they did in Calgary here at the Shakespeare Company and at one point they're all holed up in the theater and the queen comes in and uh the queen was played by Lennett Randall, who is an incredible African mm-hmm. uh, uh, actress. Um, and she walked in and I was like, oh, Lennett's playing the queen. I was like, yeah, she is. Yeah. And, and then she was just the queen. And that yeah. was it. Like the whole audience looked at her for one second and went, yeah, that's the queen. Yeah. Because someone yeah. said, here's the queen. Right. So I don't know. I, I find that like people's perception of the barrier of mm-hmm. skin color and things in theater seems way higher than the actual act of just putting people in roles. Is. Absolutely. 
people in theater, the audiences will accept whatever you give them. And so if you have a, a, a family that's that's of, of all different uh, different you know, skin tones and all that stuff, they'll will accept it. If you have a romantic pairing that's like uh, uh, people uh, pe- people of color, pe- like people who are Caucasian, doesn't matter. They'll 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 believe what you give them, and it's it's like one of those magical things about theater. And I think yeah. that we get for too many years we got we've been tied too much to like, well, it's white people, and that's really boring to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, and I find we're in like an, an incredibly painful and exciting time right now i find in theater and and at least in calgary i where we're looking towards the future Mm -hmm. where everyone has been put on hold because of this pandemic and everyone is looking so desperately at what it's going to be like when we get back and when we can perform again with the people that we love and what theater needs to be to support the different people out there Mm -hmm. and with the blm movement and all of the other things especially recently with all the hate crimes against Asian people mm-hmm. and stuff, theater has always been a guiding light and a, and a way mm-hmm. for people to take those first steps into kind of creating the future that we want. And so mm-hmm. I just find it's a very exciting time right now where as an artist, I'm feeling a lot of power uh, in creating the kind of theater that I want moving forward uh coming forward like uh yeah it, it's just a very interesting way that we can kind of yeah i don't even know where i'm going with this now yeah no, but, but yeah it's it's really interesting because to you know it's it is it is a shame that the theaters are closed we all mm-hmm. hate that the theaters are closed and that that you know people are not able to perform we're not able to sit in audiences we're not able to do that but if we were there would be just another excuse not to have the conversations that we're having now Absolutely. And the facts that we're having them and now we have there's the the ability to decide and to make the choice that the status quo doesn't work anymore. And we have mm-hmm. to fundamentally change the way that we that we create theater, the who we put on the stage, who we put behind the scenes, who we put in the office, who we have lead the companies. These are absolutely a, something that we couldn't have done if we were on the treadmill of production. Mm-hmm. I think it's it was I mean, I don't know about you, but. For me, like when the pandemic hit, it was at probably the busiest I'd ever been in my Mm. career. I had so many, and this is not me bragging, but I had so many things lined up that it was actually like anxiety inducing. It was nonstop, just, you know, keeping your eyes on the next thing ahead, trying to get through it almost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the gift of being able to stop and just reflect and think and perseverate on moving forward mm-hmm. towards that better future was actually kind of a gift to me for a little bit you know yeah. i mean i'm well over it now let's let's get oh, a, let's get this out of but but i'm it was i think necessary and very important to our profession to take a sudden stop yeah and think about it's not just enough to create any kind of art right yeah we want to make sure that we're creating the right stuff um and I think it's just giving that kind of mindfulness to the stories and people and kinds of shows that we are creating and putting in front of an audience. Yeah, absolutely. But also the fascinating thing for me, or one of the fascinating things, has been watching actors who previously, they would talk about self-care, but they were too busy to do it. Mm-hmm. Like they were working three jobs and every moment of every day was either working like rehearsing or working or this, that, and the other thing, never stopping to take a break now being forced to do so and to be thinking about what self-care looks like and to be thinking about what it, what it means to sit in silence and stillness and all of those things. Kind of incredible for, for, for some people to, to, to realize kind of what they were doing to themselves by working. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, the way theater has been structured and the way we've done it for so many years lends itself so easily to kind of mm-hmm. self-destructive habits uh, that just kind of pile up on each other, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been it's been interesting to kind of just take a step back from that for a little while. Yeah. And I've just enjoyed so much watching all my artist friends and everyone else developing different skills. Mm-hmm 
creating new things, do all the different things that are kind of outside of the profession that now they have time for, you know? So I'm like, I never knew this person loved going for giant hikes or loved, you know, everyone's baking bread, but like, (laughs) but you know, everyone's creating and developing new things and new hobbies and what everyone's doing to keep themselves sharp and, and, uh, and just getting through this thing. It's been very exciting to me to see just kind of Mm. when you take away all the acting and performing and all of that stuff, finding time for yourself as a human being to develop other facets and other yes. other yeah. interests and things, yeah. right? Like it's 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 great. Yeah, and so necessary, I think, to to be able to, you know, make ourselves into more rounded people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it ultimately is us as people that we put out on stage, right? And the more that you can develop and and grow as a person, mm-hmm. the more you have to offer for an audience. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm very excited to see kind of where everyone coming out of this lands and, and all the new kind of stuff that will be in their work moving forward. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Cause, cause you know, um, especially if you're creating theater, like being able to open yourself up to new things and to experiment and find new things, those things always find their way into your work. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a new skill that you didn't have at the start of the pandemic, then, you know, that sort of like gives you other things that you can like add to the performances that you do. So it's just, just a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question yeah. for you because yes. you've been oh, asking please. me so many questions. Well, sure. we're on that then. What is something during this pandemic that you have discovered? New hobby, new passion, new anything, Something that's getting you through the days. Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I, um, I for years I had a ukulele that I never touched. Nice. And so in the past little while, I, I've I've been playing it, actually playing it, and that's, I mean, I'm no, I'm not great at it, but it's like it, I get so much enjoyment out of like just picking it up and strumming and trying to learn a mm-hmm. new song and things like that. So that's that's been that's been really great. Um, the other thing is, is actually with this podcast, I've been doing it for four years and this, this time has made, forced me to actually have to seek out people to come on the show and allow me to make choices and to say, who am I going to reach out to? Who am I, who do I want to have on the show? Who do I want to promote on the show? And, and that sort of allows me to talk to people that are outside of my locale because so often when you're the media part of the media in a city, it's like you get Mm -hmm. a ton of, of, of press releases about shows in that city. And it's allowed me to, to contact people outside of Toronto and outside of Ontario, which is, which is great because I really think that we as a, as a country that makes, you know, uh, as theater artists in the country, we, it's fascinating and important for us to know what's happening in other places in this in the country so and i mean we have a huge country but the theater community here is fairly small yeah you know like i was just looking back through your list of people that have been on your show and stuff just kind of scrolling through because i wanted to see what i was getting myself into and there were so many familiar faces but like yeah from people from saskatchewan and people Mm -hmm. from all over the place so it was just fantastic to see their faces but it really just i mean it's we're not that far away from each other in a sense. No, like you it's know, and- in many ways we're we are so close because it is such a small community, mm-hmm. and yet shows that happen in Calgary I never get to hear about. Um, shows that happen in Edmonton I never get to hear about. The mm-hmm. only time I've ever been able to really experience shows in other cities was when I was on a fringe tour going from yeah one side of the country to another to see what was happening in in each of those cities. So that's one of the benefits uh, of doing one of those large tours is you just get to see all the amazing art that gets created in in all of the different cities in Canada. Yeah, you know there is such fantastic work going on on both coasts, but also in the middle, like. Yeah, I that's one of the reasons why I love Calgary so much is I mean, it's a young theater community mm-hmm. uh, where like it, in terms of just age of of development, I, you know, we're, we still are creating kind of the foundations of it. And that's one of the exciting things for me as an artist living here is that mm-hmm. I get to kind of feel like I can be more of the winds of change in this city than I would if I lived in a larger, larger place. Sure. But there's such great work that goes on everywhere. And it's just yeah, it's fantastic to uh, check it all out. Yeah. 
I, that's one of the things that I've I've enjoyed about you know people doing digital theater is the ability to to see some things that are happening in other theaters and in, in, in other cities. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that that when we open our theaters again, that that we do consider digital tickets, that we do consider yeah, like putting some cameras in the spaces and and selling a ticket not only is requiring people to come to the theater ableist it also means Absolutely. that um it also opens theater up both to the rest of the country and the world and we need to get out of these silos that we've been in i i just finished doing a uh, a play reading for lunchbox theater in calgary but one of the amazing things was it, it was online as everything is right now But like I had relatives who lived down in the States who were able to tune in and watch Mm -hmm. and people from all over the world that were able to like tune in and check it out and lowering that kind of barrier to entry into theater Mm -hmm. is such an incredible way to reach people that just wouldn't be able to see it anyways. And I think they were normally talking, they were saying like for these workshop things, like it was part of a workshop festival that Lunchbox Theater produces in Calgary here. And they were saying, you know, like sometimes you would have like 12, 13 people in the audience for these because it's like a, a mm-hmm. noon workshop down yeah. in the theater kind of thing. And we had, for the reading, we had over 150 people, you know, tuning in and watching or like That's 150 incredible. tickets. It could have been more, right? And so just the amount of people that you can reach by going yeah. online, I think is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's there's just so much more. You know, I, I think, you know, sometimes I think some companies are like, if, if, if we let people watch online, they'll never buy a ticket and they'll never come to see the show. Mm-hmm. And in response to that, I'm always like, I have, I used to buy CDs all the time and I, now I listen to streaming music, but I would go to see a band live. Yeah. I'll, and I want them to sing the songs I know. So, you know, I watched Hamilton on Disney plus I'd seen it live. Mm-hmm. I would go again. These things don't stop me from wanting to see the show. They're not live. exclusive. They kind of, yeah, that's right. And also like having seen it online or on a screen, it makes me want to be in this space even more. So yeah, I think we need well, to embrace I'm, that. I do too. It's really exciting. Like I, I actually just finished filming a show that's going to be going up on April 9th, uh, the paper bag princess with storybook theater Tickets are on sale now. Mm. Getting the plug in while I can. Uh, but, you know, I, the people that are going to see these shows, wh- when they are open and in person, are still going to go see them, right? Yeah. But, like, my aunt down in Colorado, she's not going to buy a plane ticket to come see it, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't think anyone's fooling themselves in saying that, like, film theater is a substitution for the real thing. Because it's not. It's a no. totally different experience. And while it can be exciting and enjoyable, it's not the same thing as real live theater in person. And so the people that are craving that are still going to go. Like, no, I don't think anyone's going to be like, I don't know if I want to see this show. So, or I really want to see this show. So I'm just going to stay at home and watch it on my TV. Like, yeah, no, I don't think anyone's going to substitute that. Right. But it will allow you you to reach people. If you had the opportunity to watch a show, a Broadway show, Live from Broadway, you might yeah. watch it, but then that might also make you say, well, God damn, I need to get, you know, I'm going to go to New York and I am going to see that show because that moment must have been incredible in the theater. Yeah. You know, and there's like, a, you know, like when we're talking about barrier to entry into theater and that kind of thing, it's like, do did I want to see the original cast of Hamilton live on Broadway? Of course. Mm-hmm. Could I afford a thousand dollar scalp ticket and the plane rides down? No. Nope. So am I excited that it's out on Disney Plus and I've been able to watch it a million times? Yes. Yeah, of would course. I, you know, but so there's just, you know, I think it reaches a lot of people that really would want to support, but just can't, right? Yeah. And, and theater also, is always limited by the number of seats in the house, yeah. the location it is, the times that it runs. So anything that can kind of shave down on how much it taxes people to uh, mm-hmm. get involved in it, I think is exciting and worth it. I think it's also a great way to sort of like be, you know, because theater is perceived as being super expensive, because when people think of of shows, they think of the big shows that cost a lot of money to see. Mm-hmm. We we have this this perception. There are people who, who will say things like, well, I saw a play once and I didn't like it. So I'm not going to go see any theater. And it's like, you know, yeah. people don't say that about movies. Yeah, but that's because a movie costs like twelve dollars to go and see or whatever the price is now. You know, it's like not a million dollars. It's not going to bankrupt you to go see the show to see a movie. 
And I think anything that lets us show to those people, hey, this can be interesting. This is interesting. You know, so that's and if you can reach out to the people that are on the fence and say, hey, you can watch this from home for like five bucks. Yeah. Or whatever. And if you don't like it, you can just turn it off. Yeah. You're not held hostage in the theater for an hour, you know, like. <laughs> I and, think- and you didn't pay so much for the ticket that you feel like like if you walk out of the theater because it's a bad show that you wasted yeah. your money. Yeah. You know, and I think. I don't know. I think it's a great way to reach out and introduce people into the kind of things that are out there, right? In a less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Less committal way, almost. Yeah. Because it's a big commitment to buy an expensive ticket, get down to the theater and do all that thing. And and for those of us that love theater, that kind of builds the anticipation, builds the suspense. But for someone who's not in it or who doesn't know what the show is about, and things, it yeah. can seem like a lot, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you can tell people, oh, yeah, you know, it just it's it's at eight o'clock. People are like, oh, but, you know, I finished work at five and I have to go home and I have to have dinner. And by that time, it's like six, you know, so much trouble to get down to the theater again. Do I really want to leave after I go home? And you know what? To be able to say, actually, just, you know, you can watch on your on your TV screen mm-hmm. is a great is a great uh, opener. Well, and I think I think, too, if we're genuinely trying to foster more artists of color and 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 that kind of thing then mm-hmm. nothing is more limiting than a, a massive ticket price yeah into stemming like there's a direct link between money that you have and your access to the arts and training and mm-hmm. all of that right mm-hmm. and so anything that allows young people to see themselves on stage to see representation mm-hmm. to uh be part of that conversation is worth it in my Absolutely. mind. No, and there are so many marginalized communities out there that just, it's way too much money. It's way too much investment to ask them to take their families to the theater kind of thing. And then we get stuck in yeah. these things where we're like, we don't know where all the people of color are and we can't cast them because they're not knocking down our door. And it's like, well, it's because you have a $60 price tag just to enter kind of thing. Right. Or yeah. whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, Years ago, I remember being at this this you know sort of a, a, a panel discussion. It was like sort of like a anybody can stand up and talk. And the co- topic was where's the audience going? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we have to. I think there was a lot of like, oh, you know, it's instead of instead. I think that's the wrong question to be asking. Like, not where is the audience going, but yeah, why aren't we? reaching out to that audience why aren't yeah, we bringing that audience the thing in? is like it's not like the audience is in the future the audience is here now yeah why can't you reach them that's the thing, thing. yeah and yeah. you know there was an initiative started in calgary here calgary edmonton area called the 3550 initiative that i'm sure you've heard about in toronto it's been everywhere and so that reflected the basis of that was trying to reflect the st- just the raw statistics of our communities on stage and so when they did, they were looking at the census polls and things, they had 50% men, 50% women, and 35% people of color. And so that's where that kind of title came from. Um, and, and when we're looking at our audiences pre-pandemic, that was not the demographics that were showing up. Uh, and so I think, you know, we have to try and find a way to reach out and create these kinds of opportunities and these mm-hmm. kinds of initiatives that help foster that moving forward for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Just to change gears slightly. Of course, yeah. Um, you mentioned that at the time that the pandemic started that you were in, you had like this whole, like it was going to be your biggest biggest year ever. Yeah. What were you working on at the time that everything shut down? And what happened in the immediate weeks after that? What was What was happening for you? What was that like? Well, I, I mean, directly when the pandemic hit and everything was shut down, I was in an audition room being a reader. So I, that was the most awful feeling because I had friends coming in to do auditions and reading, doing their sides. And then after they did their auditions, they were saying how their projects were just canceled or pulled. And they were all in the process of either they were supposed to open that night. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to do different things like that. All of that happened. But I mean, I had, I had projects lined up for the whole year, basically of, of acting things and and yeah the whole thing fell through and i I don't it was a it was just for many months it was quite numb feeling of just 
I mean, because we've been drip fed throughout the whole thing, right? Like I've been asking a lot of my friends lately. Sorry, I'm always all over the place with my answers, but I'll try and remember to round my way back. Uh, but I always have been asking my friends lately, you know, if you could go back to the start, would you rather know how long the full pandemic is going to be? Or would you rather go along as we have kind of being like, maybe it's two weeks, maybe it'll be the next four next month. Would you have it kind of drip fed to you? And I think as it kind of rounded out and we found where we were like, how long we started to get a clue of how long it was really going on. It, it changed from being kind of numb and grieving kind of loss of that into this kind of building towards what it will be like when we get back. And that's really what's been fueling me and keeping me passionate throughout the whole thing is, is the desire to help implement change once, once we can finally create again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember, you know, when, when it all started, I thought that, you know, somehow it felt like, okay, this is temporary, but by the fall, everything's going to be fine. We're going to take care of this now. And by September, mm -hmm. we're going to be, theaters are going to be open. Yeah. But I don't think, like, looking back, I think that that kind of optimism fueled me in a way that I think if somebody would say it's going to be like a year and a half and theaters are going to be closed, I would have been like, well, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> What's the point, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I, I still haven't quite come to an answer for it myself. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, at this point, I've had, say, a project that I've had booked that has been canceled and repositioned, mm -hmm. canceled, repositioned, canceled, repositioned, probably three or four times now. And kind of, it, it's almost just like peeling a scab off a wound over and over again, constantly getting a little bit of hope and then having it pulled away. So on one hand, I think it would be nice. It would have been nice just to be like, you know what? I can buckle. I can, if I can see the end goal, if it's a year and a half or mm -hmm. just whatever, sure. that that's where I can aim for as opposed mm. to like constantly having slight hope and always having it snatched away from you. That's true. That's very true. Um, now you mentioned doing some online things. Did you invest in a new camera? Did you invest in a microphone? Did you like, did you make any changes to your setup once you realized that you were going to be doing some digital stuff for a while? Uh, I, I mean, I was thankful I had a great laptop here and for me, the great thing about online is because we've been doing tons of workshops, play readings, anything to kind of keep ourselves busy and stuff, is that they're pretty relaxed. So I didn't feel the need to be like, I need to get a professional set. What I, well, mm. I did because of being stuck inside. I've had a lot more time to be doing self-tapes for film and stuff because mm -hmm. my theater hasn't been consuming my life. And I was painfully aware of how, how busted my film self-tape <laughs> setup was. And is still like, I, I still have not fixed it. It is, it's, it's a hot, <laughs> it's just boxes and then random things to hold a phone and like different lamps that I've stolen from the house. So <laughs> yeah. I'm still painfully aware of how bad that is. So I've had a year and a bit to get that fixed and I have not yet. Um, should I have probably? Yes. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I kind of feel like if there is an unfair expectation to say to actors, make your home setup look professional because yeah. otherwise we're not going to take you seriously. Whereas if I went into a, a casting director's office, there's like me on a chair in a room with shitty acoustics and a shitty camera at the back of the room and somebody reading monotone at me. That's yeah. not exactly a great setup either. So well, and like, I mean, it's a big ass. Like for me, like I'm a municipally known theater actor, but like stage is like my mom likes my stuff or right. like for film, like my mom <laughs> likes my stuff. Right. So yeah. it's a big ass to ask people that like don't have a ton of film experience to invest in a, in a setup that's going to, sure. you know, cause I'm like, that's just sunk cost until I make it back. Yeah. And also is like, are we going to be doing these Zoom self-tapes forever? Or are casting directors going to be like, you know, we have this office space that we're paying for. Maybe we should get people in for in-person auditions. Like, who knows yeah. what, that, what that's going to look like. Exactly. And it's like, no one's going to cast me. I face act too much. My eyebrows move too much. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, I've been asking everyone since the pandemic started is about... Uh, uh, joy, because as as we go through this time, we've all had our ups and downs of of, you know, feeling like like this will never end and some mm -hmm. depression and things like that. But we all have those things that get us through each day. So for you, what's been giving you joy uh, during this pandemic? 
Oh, uh, well, I mean, like the, the straight honest answer is my fiance. Uh, we got engaged during the pandemic. Uh, it's been so hard, but she's been kind of my rock through it all. Uh, so I, I, I really, I, every day I actually think I'm like, where would I have been without her? Mm. <laughs> because I would have gone nuts, especially. Yeah. Um, so she's really been my rock through it. But uh, I have an older brother who has a, a young nephew for me. And she, uh, her sister just had a, a, our, our niece. I don't know how to say these words in the right way. <laughs> But uh, so watching them grow up through Zoom is equal amounts kind of like painful because you wish you could be there, but also such mm-hmm. a joy to see that, you know, life is still going on. These kids are still cute and growing up and uh, and then just trying a million different hobbies and things. You know, every day I think we look at each other and we're like, oh, what are we going to do today? And we're like, hmm. I think it was just uh, a few days ago. She was like, I think baking is going to be my hobby. And so she just started making stuff, right? And so like every every time we're just trying to find whatever stops us going loopy in our house. Has there been a, a, a hobby that you've tried that has been like, this is something I need to keep doing? Hmm. Let's see. Uh well, pre pre pandemic, my hobby was board games. I have a very massive board game collection, and okay. nothing lends itself okay. worse to social distancing than having thousands of dollars of cardboard sitting in boxes that you need eight people to hang out yes. with. Um, but this is so nerdy. I, I do it, do it, do it. No, it, well, I got into like miniature painting uh-huh. and okay. like okay. Warhammer, uh-huh. uh, and so it's it's been very Zen to just kind of sit there and put paint on things and, and play around with that. So that's been my new hobby. I don't know if it's going to stick or not. It's very fun at the moment. Uh, I go through a love hate relationship with it, but that's what I'm doing right now. I think everybody who paints miniatures goes through a love hate relationship with, with the painting of miniatures. Yes. Yes. Um, just like everybody who's like playing role-playing games or playing like D and D it's yep. like, no, I only want to pay, play fifth edition. How many editions is it now? Ah, you know, all of the, <laughs> all of the changes. I hate the changes or whatever. There's, everybody has these love, this love-hate relationship, yeah. but you stick with it because of how it comes out in the end or the people that you're playing with. So Yeah, yeah I, I was one of the many people who also then had a pandemic D&D group that they joined in with, and we've been horribly unproductive. I mean, it's it's shocking how little we get done in our sessions. That's standard. That's standard Dungeons and Dragons role playing game stuff. Like, yeah, if you were not bantering with your with your group more than you're actually going out and doing stuff, I think there's the, the game is is dysfunctional. Yeah, like that kind of non productive banter is like what makes the it's game. The whole it's point of it. Exactly. Exactly. What's the point? Who needs to go do the actual story when there's you know stuff to get done, people to mess with. Absolutely. Right here. Absolutely. That's <laughs> absolutely the right thing. Yeah. It may be frustrating for the DM, but it's fun for the fun for the players. Yeah, we usually just end up playing until our dungeon or like talking until our dungeon master is like, so there's a the dragon <laughs> is still there. And we're like, oh yeah, let's go deal with that real fast and then get yeah. back to the main topic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to see that that, that you're that you found the true meaning of of nerding out. <laughs> <laughs> I found it. Mom. Yeah. Mom, I made it. <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. This is a blast. 